Well, we are in Acts 21, and uh, finally out of Acts 20, I know you guys are celebrating, we've been there for a little while, uh, uh, Danny, there, there is Chris right there you can sit with, he's a Trinity fitness guy, so, <laughs> um, so we're in Acts 21, Paul's heading back to Jerusalem, and last week we saw Paul on the shores of Miletus basically calling the young leaders and the elders of Ephesus there, those young leaders that were were with him, Timothy, uh, Gaius, Aristarchus, Secundus, Tychicus, Trophimus, they were all there with him as Paul's young protégés. Timothy would end up being the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And then he had the elders from the church at Ephesus there as he's kind of imparting this last message to them as he says, I'm never going to see you again. And he told them that they need to prioritize their own personal character and growth. Now that's a big deal. It was a big deal then, it's a big deal now. Unfortunately, in our country, in the churches that are few, I mean, that are vast and far everywhere, Um, more importantly a lot of times than the character and the, the, the spiritual maturity of the communicator, it's more about the communication style, the personality. Is he likable? Is he funny? Charles Spurgeon wrote a um, book years ago and, he, and in that book, there's a chapter called Letters to My Students. And it addresses the issue of personal holiness, personal character development. And he really challenged them. This is what makes you a preacher of the Most High God. These things internally. And I can tell you, as you look at the life of Paul, he lived out what he preached. Anything he expected you to do, he did. Anything he was saying from God's Word, he didn't just tell you to do something and live another way. And that's why he's he's telling them, pay attention to yourselves first. It's one of the first things he says to them as he's leaving. Pay attention to yourselves. Personal character and growth. But he also said, you need to pay attention to the flock and you need to have care and concern for the flock, for the church. And what's a shepherd's job? What does he do for the sheep? He feeds them and protects them. Can you imagine, guys, a shepherd that would lead his sheep to places where there's no food? There's a lot of churches that are led by pastors who don't feed their sheep. Oh, they feed them something, but it ain't food. It ain't God's food. It may be, it may be uh, social justice stuff. And listen, if there ever was a time for social justice, it was in Jesus' day. You know, people think this is so bad, all the stuff we see. It was ten times worse back then. And Jesus came to preach and save the lost. So, a pastor's job, a shepherd's job, is to care for and feed the sheep. Guys, do you know you all are shepherds? 
There are people around all of you, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor's kids, or, or maybe your neighbor. If anybody is less advanced in you in the knowledge of the Scriptures and God's brought them into your life, you're to be an influencer in their life. You're to be a person that helps them because you're an older brother in the Lord. We're all priests. We all have a responsibility to care for the church. And the church is the believers. Third, he called last week when he's talking to him for them to have a protective concern for the truth. Like Jude says, you've got to defend it. Fight for it. Fight for the truth. Don't just be content to let people espouse lies about God's Word. Do you know that in England yesterday or the day before, the archbishop of the whole, uh, like this denomination, turned in a younger pastor because of a tweet about God's biblical design for men and women as hate speech. He turned him into the authorities over there. He's forgotten that we're to guard the truth. I saw that. Something about binary God. Yeah. Well, but, but the whole thing was, he was saying God designed us male and female. That is God's truth. Amen. That's God's truth. Amen. And it doesn't matter what... Listen, we see where secular progression leads. If you didn't hear or see in the papers, the other night at the Grammys, they basically had a satanic ritual up on stage of right. worshiping Satan. Yep. That's where it all leads. Satan's just licking his lips and laughing at everything that he sees going on in our country. All this progressive stuff because it goes against the very Word of God. And so, he says, you've got to guard the truth. And also, he told them, you have to have a pure commitment to God's work. Guys, I didn't covet anybody's money. I didn't do it out of greed. I did it for the love of God. I, I, I was purely committed to the work He's called me to. There was no secondary or other agenda. And so, this week, we see Paul leaving them on the shore. He left them. They were sad. But they bid him goodbye. And he got in a boat to go back to Jerusalem with a few stops along the way. And we're going to pay specific attention to his stop in Caesarea. It's really fascinating when you stop and think about what he did there. But Paul is completely surrendered to the lordship of Jesus and God's will for his life. Even if it includes suffering and imprisonment. He continues to live out everything he preaches. And he calls on other leaders to do the same. In fact, God calls you and me to live lives that are fully surrendered to Him. Not partially. Not incompletely. Not intermittently. But fully surrendered to Him. In fact, there, there really, there's, there's four types of surrender we see. And one of them is incomplete surrender. And basically what that means is you're, you're willing to surrender to God up to a point. Okay, I'll give Him this much of my life, but I'm not stepping over that line. I don't care what He says. This is all I'm giving Him. 
Oh, it may cost me my family. It might cost me my money. It might cost me my power. It might cost me something I really like. So I'll give him this much, but I'm not going to give him more than that. That's not legalism. People say that's legalism to say that. No. He wants us to surrender to Him, but not incompletely. Is there a guy in Scripture that did that? Yeah. A guy named Demas. 2 Timothy 4. Paul says to Timothy as he's writing him at the end of his life, Demas left me because of his love for this present world. He left him. Now this is the same Demas that Paul spoke about in another letter very fondly. That was with him. That was following. What happened? He left him for the love of this world. It was an incomplete surrender. There's a lot of people in churches across this country and across the world that give God 90% of their heart, but they don't give Him this other 10%. They just hold it. They hold it and they say, I can't give Him that for whatever reason. That's incomplete. Well, second type is insincere. This is all talk and no action. This is somebody who says, yes, I surrender, but I don't. Like the parable Jesus told of the two sons. One said, I'll do it. He didn't. One said, I won't do it. And he did it. Which one actually did the Father's will? The one who did it. Remember Peter before he had the Holy Spirit? I'll, I'll, I'll die for you, Lord. I'll die for you. They may all leave you, but not me. I'm with you to the end. It wasn't 24 hours later. I don't know him. I'm not with him. I don't know that blankety blank. He cusses to try to distance himself because it really was an insincere surrender at that point. Now later, he did surrender. And it was a total surrender. And he ended up giving his life being crucified upside down. But then there's an intermittent surrender. I think that's where we are a lot of times. It, it kind of comes and goes. And, and the, the church at Ephesus, which Paul addressed before he left, is a good example of that. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation 2? He said, you have left what? Your first love. I have this against you. You've left the first love. But He says what? Repent and come back that you may be refreshed. I think we struggle with that. We leave our first love sometimes. We get distracted. But then there's total surrender. You think about Jesus who modeled total surrender. You think about Stephen who modeled total surrender. Stephen had not been a believer for that long. James gave his life. Paul, the apostles... And these people had conviction regardless of consequences. Their consequences of those convictions didn't change their convictions. And that's really what total surrender is. You're, you have a conviction that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people think. I was with a, a couple yesterday. And... I was telling them they, they, they wanted to meet with me because they, they don't like something that I'm trying to do. It's Amos it's that has the deal out there. So I, they, I went and met with them. Christian, it was a Christian lady and her mom. The mom was sweet, 
97 years old, served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea. The daughter grew up, the child of missionaries, loves the Lord, but they didn't like what I was going to do. And, and they wanted to talk to me. They'd heard about me and they wanted to meet me. And so I went there and met with them. And I shared my heart with them. I said, I, I'm just trying to follow God. And I said, I don't, you know, this is awkward for me because you're believers and you don't want what I think God's calling me to do. And I can only tell you this, I don't want to do anything God doesn't want me to do. If He wants me to do it, I'm going to do it and I don't care what people think. And the lady looked me in the eye, the young lady. Uh, she's not, I mean, she not really young. I mean, she was, the, the mom's 97, so the daughter's uh, almost 70. But the, but, the, but, the, but, the, but, the, but the daughter looked me in the eye and she said, I wish there were more men who said that and did that. She goes, I can respect that. And you know what that makes me want? If God wants that, I want it. Even though I don't like what it is, I want it if it's what God wants. And the mom just smiled. The 97-year-old, she just smiled. And I, and I told him I had to go do the radio. And, and, and the mom, I, and I said, can I pray for you all? So I prayed for him. And then the mom said, can I pray for you and the radio? And she just took my hand. Just sweet, sweet lady. Serve the Lord. And I kissed her hand. This was a missionary who gave her life out on the mission field. And she's seen a lot. And she was so sweet. But they were surrendered because you know what? They had a desire, but that desire became secondary to God's will. They both said that. And I said that. So we were in agreement that we all want what God wants. And we see that kind of commitment in Paul. So, as we look at verses 1-16 through 16 in chapter 21 today, to live fully surrendered, God calls us to live daily with the knowledge of His purpose. To live daily with the knowledge of His purpose. If we're going to live fully surrendered lives to Him, we have to know His purpose. And I don't just mean His general purpose. I'm talking about... His purpose for me. His purpose for you. What is His purpose? And we see that in Paul's life. Secondly, if we're going to live surrendered, we've got to live deliberately with singleness of His purpose. You know what I mean by that? The singleness of His purpose means that that is the driving direction of my life. That's the goal. That's the finish line. That's what I'm looking for. Whatever His purpose is for me, that's where I want to go. And like Paul, if it means going to suffer, if it means going to jail, I'm going to go because that's what God wants. But what about my family? I'll trust God with that. I'll trust Him with that. And third, if we're going to live fully surrendered, He calls us to live dyingly with the supremacy of His purpose. That means... The supremacy. You know what that means? It's supreme to everything. That means even my own life comes secondary. The very breath I take becomes secondary to His purpose in my life. If He wants me, He's got me. Paul says that's gain. So, 
That's what I see in this text as Paul demonstrates living a life of knowledge of his purpose, singleness of his purpose, and a supremacy of his purpose in his life. Because he goes back knowing they've already told him what? Suffering awaits you, Paul. Suffering and pain and imprisonment. And he goes, okay, we got to go. Going back. Got to do what God wants. So let's read the text and we're going to come back and we're going to look kind of at each of these, focusing primarily on that third one, but we're going to, we'll work through it. Starting in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and we landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, We said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Now when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Now on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. I bet that was quite a reunion. Because if you remember, Philip the Evangelist left Jerusalem because of Paul. Paul killed his friend Stephen. So imagine that conversation. They hadn't seen each other that we know of since then. For 20 years. 20 years later. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard this, we and the people there... Who's the we there, by the way? When he says we, who's he talking about? It's Luke. Luke and who? Yeah, the seven guys. So these are the guys that are with him and they're saying, hey, you can't go. Now, I want you to think for a second. I know when my son deployed, his kids were like, don't go, daddy, don't go. They didn't want him to leave. You know how hard that made it on my son? So these are guys that Paul has invested in saying, please don't leave. Don't go there. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm, not ready, for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple. 
crusty old guy who'd been a disciple for a while. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Yes. Well, what was he doing? He was taking money to Jerusalem because they needed funds. They were poor. They didn't have money for food. He had collected up money from the churches of Asia, and he was bringing them with these disciples from Asia to show that the Gentiles cared about the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And he he felt that was a very important thing. The other thing was, it was Pentecost. He knew his time was drawing near, and he wanted one more shot at trying to reach his brothers. And so, and, and he obviously felt led by the Spirit. And you go, but wait a minute, didn't the Spirit move them to say that? Well, maybe it did, but maybe the Spirit just revealed to them that he was going to suffer. And maybe they allowed their own self desires to overwhelm that and to try to tell them to stop. Do we do that as humans sometimes? You bet. You know how many times I've been told by people that love me, you can't do that. You can't. You shouldn't do that. Don't go there. Don't do that. It's dangerous. That's going to be really hard. But if God wants you to do it, you do it. And Paul obviously felt led by the Lord to do it. And he lived daily with the knowledge of his purpose. They went from Kos, Rhodes, Patera. If you look where Paul was, they were just going these little bitty trips. They were on a little ship. Then he gets on this ship that's going to Phoenicia and then on to Tyre. And it's a 400-mile journey there. It was a bigger ship. And it says, he went on to Cyprus, leaving it on the left. He sailed on to, to Tyre. You know, leaving that seashore in Ephesus would, would have been very difficult. He had spent three years building into these people. They're weeping. They're upset. But he knew his purpose. You know, in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says, Jesus who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He gave us a holy calling on each one of our lives. If we're His, we have a holy calling on our life from the Most High God, the, the King of the universe. It's, and, and you know, for a lot of people, they think only the pastor has a calling. But it doesn't matter. And Amos, if you do land development, that's not your calling. That's just the platform God gave you to go live out your calling. It ain't the way you make... A lot of people think, well, i got to do this to, to support my family. No. God supports your family. You work as your mission field, wherever it is. He gives you talents and experiences and personalities and desires that He uses for His glory for you to be His kingdom priest wherever it is. doesn't matter if you're a police officer. doesn't matter if you're a land developer, a judge. It doesn't matter. Those things... You, you are called to serve the Most High God. He determines where that is. And, and people wonder sometimes they, they don't get a, a job promotion or they don't get a job they want. They're striving. All they want to do, the whole life, all I wanted to do was this. My, growing up, all I wanted to do was be a pro baseball player. And God said, no. 
That's not it. He let me play college baseball, but he didn't let me go play pro baseball. He said, I want you to do this. And so you just, you, you understand that he takes you places. And see, I got distracted when I got in the Marine Corps because I thought it was about me being a pilot, not about me being his servant in that career field. And so Paul understood the knowledge of his purpose. And in, in, in fact, back in Acts chapter 9, remember when uh, Ananias was afraid to go see him and God told him, listen, go. He is a what? A chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. So even in his very moment that he surrendered the first time, God's revealing to him, you're mine and this is your purpose. And it's going to include suffering. And I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer. And did he show him? Yeah. You know, when these people are telling him, God's revealed to us that you're going to suffer, they're fulfilling prophecy that God gave Paul and Ananias. So he understood the knowledge of his purpose. Well, in verse 4, it says, he sought out the disciples where? He sought out the disciples in Tyre. Where did they come from? Tyre's up north. It was like really not an area that they would spend a lot of time. The Jewish people didn't like hanging out over in Tyre. So where did these disciples come from? My friend Tommy Nelson calls the church at Tyre the puppy church. You know why? Because there was a lady from that region. And she went to Jesus to get her daughter healed. And Jesus said, I can't. I, well, I can't give the, the bread to dogs and she said yeah but even the dogs will get the crumbs so maybe she was the one that spread the word up there that's why my friend calls it the puppy church it's a nice thought isn't it it's really interesting to think about that but we don't know where those disciples came from but paul sought them out he goes there and he's looking for disciples why you think he just wants to say, hey, let's just go have a, have a soda and chill for a little bit? No. Paul is always looking for somebody to build into. Are we doing that? That's part of our purpose. Are our eyes open looking for those people? When we go to a new area, are we looking to say, are, are those people believers? Man, I want to I talk to them. I want to share some of the things God's put on my heart. That's what Paul was doing. Why? Because he lived deliberately with this singleness of his purpose. He stayed there seven days with them. That's a, that's a long time to stay with people you don't know. You know, after three days, you start to stink a little bit, you know? That's what one guy said. But he's there seven days. And guess what? After seven days, they all went with him down to the beach to say goodbye. The same way the Ephesians did. He'd spent three years with them. And they what? Don't go. Don't go. When I go over to India or to uh, the Philippines or Africa or wherever, and you're teaching these people that don't get a steady diet of the Bible taught, and you start to leave, they're like, please stay just a little longer. Don't leave. We just have a few more questions. They, they're hungry. And these people were 
hungry. And it says in verse 5 that they prayed and they said goodbye on the beach. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Why? Because Paul pressed on. What was his purpose? To press on. You know, Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain toward what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's a man who is running his race to win. His eyes are on the finish line. He's not looking at his competitors. He's looking at the finish line. He knows his purpose. He knows the purpose God's given him. So he lives daily with that knowledge and he lives deliberately with the singleness to I'm committed. So he gets on the boat. I'm sure he would love to have stayed and spent more time, but he knows what his purpose is. And then we get into the real crux of what we're talking about today, to live dyingly with the supremacy. It says, verse 7, we finished the voyage. We arrived at Ptolemy. Ptolemy was halfway between Tyre and Caesarea. And he says, on the next day we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Do you know Philip is the only one in Scripture with the name Evangelist attached to his name? Nobody else is called the Evangelist. What's interesting about Philip is when we think of ministry to the Gentiles or evangelizing the Gentiles, who pops into mind? Paul, Peter to Cornelius. But do you know that Philip was the first one to evangelize Gentiles? Do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch? And then after that, where it said he went to Caesarea in chapter 8. He was evangelizing Gentiles way before Paul did. Because, listen, Caesarea was a pagan place. It was so pagan that the Jewish people considered it like another country. They didn't even treat it like Israel. In fact, in the text today, Luke says something that gives us that indication, and I'll, I'll mention it in a second. But Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, he says, as for you, Timothy, remember he's writing Timothy, and it's like, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy wasn't a natural evangelist. But Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. What is the work of an evangelist, guys? Yeah! The good news. Euangelion. And the euangelion is not God just wants to save you. It's that Jesus is the Messiah and He came to make it possible for you to be in the kingdom of God. It's not just about a destination in heaven. That's a byproduct of it. But we are to be evangelizing people with the good news. Remember I told you from Romans 10 when it talks about blessed is the one who the feet of those that bring good news. That word euangelion there in the Septuagint in the Old Testament in Isaiah 52, it tells us what the euangelion is, the good news is. It's salvation, peace, and that our God reigns. Our God reigns. 
He reigns over me. He reigns over you. And so we live in faith. What did Jesus celebrate every time it happened in the New Testament? What did He celebrate? Every time somebody exhibited faith that God reigned. Hey, you don't have to come to my house. Just speak it. That's God reigning. Right? He celebrated that. That God reigns. And that's the Gospel. And that's what we're called to proclaim. The supremacy of His purpose is that His people would be His witnesses in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We would make disciples. We would share the Gospel. Those disciples would be people that we're encouraging to spread the Gospel and to make other disciples. Verse 9 says He had four unmarried daughters and they prophesied. There's, there's two types of uh, prophecy. There's, there's the preaching or explaining God's Word. That's, pro- that's prophecy. And then, there's, and then there's direct revelation about something that's going to happen. In the Bible, the word they prophesied a lot of times they would be saying God's Word or they would be explaining God's Word. They would be sharing God's Word, the history of God's Word. They call that prophesying. And what's interesting about these four daughters is as they... Luke just writes a statement, they prophesy. That's it. He doesn't say anything about what they prophesied, anything else. Why did He put that in there? You've got to ask the question why a lot of times when you see stuff like that in Scripture. Well, there's an extra-biblical source, another historian named Eusebius, who wrote about an early church father named Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S. And Papias relayed as an early church father. The early church father were only one or two generations removed okay, from the apostles. But Papias made the statement that Philip's daughters prophesied about the history of the church. Now, whose letter are we reading here? Who wrote this? Luke. And who was there when they prophesied? So do you, do you wonder if maybe that what Luke wrote back in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 3, might have been something that they shared about as they prophesied and he wrote it. When they prophesied, because it doesn't say anything else about them prophesying, it just says they prophesied. That's it. And then it talks about Agabus, a prophet who comes down and then he foretells something about the Apostle Paul. And he does it in a vivid way. In fact, notice, well, just one quick side statement on the whole prophecy and women thing because that comes up. I'm not going to go into it, but you can go to 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 14. In both places, it talks about women in the church, women prophesying. It has nothing to do with the value of women. It has everything to do with God's role and the role that He has given them in the church. Their value is equal with men. But their role is different. And Paul makes that clear. And by the way, if, if you question that, say, well, that was a matter of their culture. Do you know Jesus had women following Him with the apostles? They followed Him. It's in the Scriptures. He, they followed Him. But He didn't pick a woman apostle. He didn't. 
And Paul wrote the Corinthians years, years after that. And so there's a reason. And Paul takes it all the way back to Adam and Eve because it's God's design. Just like male and female is God's design. Amen. You can't change it. You can try. It ain't going to work out too well for you. So, verse 10, Agabus came down from Judea. It's so interesting that Luke used that term there. He came down from where? Judea. Well, Caesarea is in Judea. But remember I told you they considered it like another country. It was so pagan, so Roman, that when it says he came down from Judea, it was almost like they treated it like a different country. And so Agabus comes down. Remember Agabus from before? He was in Acts 11. He prophesied about a famine uh, earlier in Acts chapter 11. And they sent relief. And this was not their first encounter because the relief came through Paul and Barnabas then. And so Agabus takes Paul's belt and he binds him. Now, in the Old Testament, there were prophets that would God would use these real vivid illustrations to predict suffering and judgment. And I want to give you a couple of quick examples. 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, um, Jeroboam uh, and Rehoboam. I don't know if you remember, um, but Jeroboam and Rehoboam were... Um, well, Rehoboam was, was Solomon's son. And Jeroboam was a servant that ended up becoming the king. And so... Um, verse 29 of 1 Kings 11, listen to what it says. When Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. How many tribes? Twelve. Twelve. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord to God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. I'm going to give you ten tribes, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of all the tribes. Because they have forsaken me, they worship Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, They've not walked in my ways. So he's declaring to him, he gives him ten strips of garment and says, you're going to have ten tribes. It was just a vivid way. Isaiah 20, another one. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos saying, go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. Think about that. Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years because God told him to. Don't you do that? I mean, I'm serious. I want you to think. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's the whole point of He did it for three years. As a, just as an illustration. God wanted to use that. And listen to what He says. He says, As he's walked naked, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles. 
young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt, and they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. See, Israel was looking to Egypt instead of God. And God said, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to make an example of them. Jeremiah 13, the Lord said, go buy a linen loincloth, put it around your waist. Don't dip it in water. So I bought bought the loincloth according to the word of the Lord. This is in Jeremiah 13. Put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came a second time. Now take the loincloth that you bought and arise, go to the Euphrates, hide it in the cleft of the rock. So I went and I did it. That's what he said. After many days, the Lord said, now arise, go to the Euphrates, take it, that the one that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and I dug it, I took it out, and behold, it was spoiled and good for nothing. And the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. He's just doing a vivid illustration. There's another one in Ezekiel 5. But God uses these vivid illustrations to illustrate judgment or suffering. And in Paul's case, it's suffering. And what happened in verse 12? We saw he said he urged him not to go. It says, we urged him not to go. And what did Paul say? Stop breaking my heart. Stop it, he says. You're breaking my heart. What are you doing? I'm ready to die for the name of Christ. You see, Paul embraced Luke 9.23 where Jesus said, listen, if anyone wants to follow me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me every day. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And so Paul embraced that. That just wasn't something he had printed on a poster and put up in his room. He really lived it. Paul wrote to Timothy at the end of 2 Timothy, which was right at the end of his life. He said, I'm already being poured out. Timothy is a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but all who've loved his appearing. Paul knew. Paul knew. And by the way, when he knew he was going to die, there were two main ways that you died at the hands of the Romans. Crucifixion and beheading. Both of those are torturous. The, the, the beheading is seen as merciful, but can you imagine leading up to that? I mean, shoot me, man. Just <laughs> shoot me with a gun. I don't want my head chopped off. Just think about that. But he knew where he was going. He knew that everything he was doing was ordained by God and he was okay with it if it was ordained by God. He would not be persuaded to not do it. Verse 14. In Philippians 1, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is better for me, he says, but to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. He says, I want to do what God wants. I want to do what God wants. Philippians 3, he says, whatever gain I had in this world, I count it as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of 
and the surpassing knowing, uh, knowledge of knowing Christ. For his sake I've suffered the lost thing. I count them as rubbish. He would not be persuaded. Verse 10 of that same chapter, chapter 3 says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and I may share in His suffering becoming like Him in death. That, that is unbelievable that that's what He wants. I can honestly say I don't know people that want that. I, I, my desire is to want to want that. I want to be totally surrendered to Him. You know, Tom, I was thinking about... Um, when I was in your office 25 years ago. I had Tom and a bunch of guys in that office that were at a Bible study write out on a sheet of paper, I am totally surrendered to Jesus Christ, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I said, draw a line for your signature and write today's date on it. Well, you're going to do it right now too. I want you to write it out on a sheet of paper. I am totally surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am totally surrendered. You don't have to sign it. Nobody's going to force you to sign it. God doesn't want anybody forced into anything like that. But I'm going to tell you, a guy did that for me, and it, it, it was really helpful for me just in getting a visual picture like that same picture of what Agabus did it's just a tangible thing you can do to write it down it's not that this this does not mean you're going to be perfect it doesn't mean you're going to live holy lives the rest of your life 24 7 but what it means is your desire is to be totally surrendered that's what you want and you keep coming back to him and you remember this sheet that you signed and this date and you say, I want that. And you don't let the enemy throw you off course. You don't let the enemy distract you to say, oh, I, I, I don't really want that. You want to be totally surrendered. I am totally surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Draw a blank for your name and write today's date. And then you sign it when you want to. But as we leave today, I want you to think about these thoughts. What purpose drives my life? What purpose drives my life, really? Not what I say, but what I do. What purpose drives my life? What things are keeping me from accomplishing the objectives God has for me? What is it, what is it that I look at that is taking me away from what God wants me to do? What purpose am I willing to die for? May not be anything. Maybe your kids. Maybe something else. When I got in the Marine Corps, I was willing to die for my country. I wouldn't have got in if I, I didn't believe that. Every time I took off in that jet, I, I, I knew there was a chance I might not come home. Many of my friends didn't. What am I willing to die for? I think King Jesus is a worthy cause to die for. And so I hope that this has given you pause for thought, something to really think about. And I hope you'll sign that. I really do. 
Uh, and I hope that'll be something that defines the rest of your life, that you're surrendered to the Lordship of Him. So, uh, Craig, will you close our time in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us today. For the inspired words that you and God share with us. And for each man in this room, God, as we ponder our lives, our purpose, what we need to surrender and how we need to live for you, God. Speak to our hearts deeply. Guide us. Lead us to a place, Lord, where all things that we do are for your purpose. Our goal is to, our purpose, Lord, is to do your will in all aspects. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Chris.